0: Going to be talking about depression and joy. And so we want to read a story of a man who went through this, Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll read together. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That sounded well rehearsed. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king of Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of abel Meloah." You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And you know how he finds Elisha in verse 19. Depression is going to remind us of the importance of our, our minds. And uh, you know our minds are created by God. Not just emotionally, also cognitively. We're spoken to by God. It speaks to us truth. And we're redeemed in our minds. Think of the redeemed mind of Romans well, now, this topic of depression is a huge topic and comes in many different degrees of severity. And so in this message, I hope to t- touch on the various areas briefly, but I'm going to focus in on what I call sort of moderate depression and what we can do to prevent and push back against it, develop resilience, and heal. So let's go through a few things here together. This thing is sort of, what's going on? Kind of a delayed reaction. You know what? I'm just going to. Okay, there we are. So, when you uh, come, speaking from a psychological uh, angle, you know, depression largely has to do with a number of things sadness. Sometimes that's a, you know, a blunt affect, just sort of a not feeling, a dullness, a feeling, hopelessness, guilt. Not only sadness, but. From an activity perspective, a lethargy, a lack of energy. From the, the vegetative functions, you know, eating, sleeping, sexual behavior, there'll be changes, maybe less or even sometimes more. And one of the, the things that uh, is very common in depression, cognitively, our thoughts are always more negative and dark. We see this reflected in the Scriptures, don't we? Think of the sadness, crying, crying. Hopeless, blunt affect theme, worthlessness and shame. Think of the example of of Hannah. There in 1 Samuel 1. She she weeps and she would not eat. There's the bodily piece. And she's deeply distressed and she weeps bitterly. And then she has this Dorcas husband that says, You know, am I not more to you than ten sons? I guess he would probably, they would be candidates for marital therapy, I would say. And he would have a fair bit to own in that. That's Hannah. Depression. Then there's Paul. Paul's the same. What does he say in 2 Corinthians 1? I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. See, he was able to model what Caleb has been teaching us about willing to be in touch with our emotions and to share our emotional experience with others. So he said, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He says we were utterly burdened beyond our strength and we despaired of life itself. So there's the sadness and the hopelessness. You know, when it comes to the body changes, we see that right here with Elijah. You know, he's tired. Sleeping more than normal. And and he doesn't want to eat. And God encourages him towards that. But David in Psalm 102 is a a great example of this. You can read it all on your own. But here are some of the phrases. He says, verse 3, My days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. So there's hopelessness. There's pain. Verse 4, he says, I forget to eat my bread. Verse 6, he says, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. There's the feelings of sadness and loneliness. Verse 7, he says, I lie awake. Sleep changes. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Verse 8, he says, "...all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse." Maybe he did have enemies. might have been true, but it's also true that depressed people often have darkened cognitions and it's almost like negative sunglasses so that people around around them confront them and say, well, it's not really that way, but it's to no avail. To no avail. Then verse 9, he says, "...I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears." With my drink. These are some of the symptoms. Even suicidal ideation. Elijah here is an example of that. He he says, what does he say? He says, I've had enough. Take my life. In this case, he's not of a plan to take his life, but, but he's just lost hope. And if only my life could be taken away by God. You know, as we uh, as we go through this, a few other things. Just, I've got a video here I want to show you, but I'm going to say a few other things here first. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, major depression, it's, it's it's a big problem, very common problem. So if you have this, you're not alone. Uh, a National Institute of Mental Health by Kaplan Sadock in 2015 study estimated a range of. People that would uh, have major depressive disorder anywhere from 5% to 17% in some statistics higher. Very common. You're not alone. There's help. You're not alone. For males, the highest time period is from 45 to 55. For females, from 35 to 55. Unfortunately, this is one of the, uh, one of the, the areas that is, is not very kind to women. Uh, women have this two times more often than men. Many potential causes. Maybe there's the, the hormone uh, factor. Maybe there's uh, childbirth effects. Maybe there's stressors, you know, living with men. <laughs> I mean, it, it is true what Caleb has said. You know, as, as women have taken more of the, the work of working, but have men taken the roles at home? Or is it just more on a woman's shoulder? Inordinate stress it's not fair. it needs to be worked out. Let's go to this video. This is not a Christian video, but I thought it helpfully combined a number of things. So just take a look at this. This is by the World Health Organization. Hmm. Looks like black
1: dog made an appearance. I thought empty and life just seemed to slow down. He could surprise me with a visit for no reason or occasion. The black dog made me look and feel older than my years. When the rest of the world seemed to be enjoying life, I could only see it through the black dog. Activities that usually brought me pleasure suddenly ceased to. He liked to ruin my appetite. He chewed up my memory, and my ability to concentrate. Doing anything going anywhere with the black dog required superhuman strength. At social occasions, he'd sniff out what confidence I had and chase it away. My biggest fear was being found out. I worried that people would judge me. Because of the shame and stigma of the black dog, I was constantly worried that I'd be found out. So I invested vast amounts of energy into covering him up. Keeping up an emotional lie is exhausting. Black dog could make me think and say negative things. He could make me irritable and difficult to be around. He would take my love and bury my intimacy. He loved nothing more than to wake me up with highly repetitive and negative thinking. He also liked to remind me how exhausted I was going to be the next day. Having a black dog in your life isn't so much about feeling a bit down, sad or blue. At its worst, it's about being devoid of feeling altogether. As I got older, the black dog got bigger, and he started hanging around all the time. I'd chase him off with whatever I thought might send him running. But more often than not, he'd come out on top. Going down became easier than getting up again. So I became rather good at self-medication, which never really helped. Eventually, I felt totally isolated from everything and everyone. The black dog had finally succeeded in hijacking my life. When you lose all joy in life, you can begin to question what the point of it is. Thankfully, this was the time that I sought professional help. This is my first step towards recovery and a major turning point in my life. I learned that it doesn't matter who you are, the black dog affects millions and millions of people. It is an equal opportunity mongrel. I also learned that there was no silver bullet or magic pill. Medication can help some, and others might need a different approach altogether. I also learned that being emotionally genuine and authentic to those who are close to you can be an absolute game changer. Most importantly, I learned not to be afraid of the black dog, and I taught him a few new tricks of my own. The more tired and stressed you are, the louder he barks, so it's important to learn how to quiet your mind been clinically proven that regular exercise can be as effective for treating mild to moderate depression as antidepressants. So go for a walk or a run and leave them up behind. Keep a mood journal. Getting your thoughts on paper can be cathartic and often insightful. Also keep track of the things that you have to be grateful for. The most important thing to remember is that no matter how bad it gets, if you take the right steps, talk to the right people, black dog days can and will pass. I wouldn't say that I'm grateful for the black dog, but he's been an incredible teacher. He forced me to re-evaluate and simplify my life. I learned that rather than running away from my problems, it's better to embrace them. The black dog may always be part of my life, but he'll never be the beast that he was. We have an understanding. I've learned through knowledge, patience, discipline and humor, the worst black dog can be made to heal. If you're in difficulty, never be afraid to ask for help. There is absolutely no shame in doing so. The only shame is missing out on life.
0: Okay, a couple more things we're going to talk about here before we go into some strategies for, for healing. Um, different causes. And this whole issue of endogenous versus situational. You know, some depressions are medical and medication is clearly necessary. We're not going to talk a lot about that here, but I do want to mention that unequivocally. Remember that Dr. Luke documented the healing ministries of the Acts. So that just because God can miraculously heal doesn't mean that medication will not be helpful or may not be necessary. Medication and scientific research are part of God's common grace to us. And this is where Christians actually are in a, maybe in a tough spot. They're known uh, to be quite difficult to treat. And, and one of the reasons is, is that we, we spiritualize everything. I've got a struggle in my life. It must be a spiritual inadequacy. And that furthers the shame and, and the negative self-talk. And so, and so we need to be willing to, you know, spirituality is a resource that we can lean on God, but God is going to perhaps use many, many uh, ways for healing. Well, some depressions are medical. Other depressions are situational, stress, trauma, grieving. But medication still can help to get a person to a better place where they're able then to seek counseling. So stress is acknowledged to be a a big cause. Ongoing stress leading to depression. Sleep problems. Another one, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm indebted for this one, perfectionism. Sharon Snooks reminded me of this, and I appreciate that. You know, there are some Christians who are careless Christians and they need exhortation. But we need to be very aware when we teach in the church that such exhortation may put sensitive and careful Christians into an even worse spot. They're anxious. They're depressed that they don't measure up and they're unable to cut themselves slack the grace and forgiveness of God. Great implications there for teaching. Other people, depression may come from the feeling of being let down by God. And so we need to be careful how we hold the the balance between victory on the one hand and suffering and cross-bearing on the other hand in our Christian lives. The name-it-and-claim-it movement has no room, as i said before, for a theology of suffering. If you're suffering, you're out of God's mind. This is obviously false. But equally, do we have no room for victory? Sadness doesn't equal godliness. And so somewhere in between, we need to have a place for people who have felt let down by God. And through the Psalms of Lament, they're able to bring that To the Lord. Caleb has mentioned about sexual abuse and I'd be remiss not to mention this issue. It's a big issue in the news these days. And as I agree with him, bigger reality in the church than we realize. It's in the Bible. Think of Tamar in Genesis 38. I know in the assemblies I've been in, that passage has been passed over. Rarely talked about in the church. And given the tendency in the church towards secrecy and shame, I fear that the statistic 5% 5% of the population having experienced this may underestimate the problem in the church. Sin can also lead to depression. But, you know, as we, as we think through all these different causes, now what I want to come to is, is what, what are we going to do to change? The first, thing, first theme that I want to point out as we go into this is the difference between coping and context changes. A lot of what I'm going to be saying is, is coping. Strategies, both biblical and psychological, and I hope they'll be helpful. But at the same time, if depression is situation, situational, comes from a you know a depressing inducing situation, sometimes it takes wisdom to know: Do I need to change my context? That may, in, may in itself be stressful to find a new context or to raise a, a problem and, and, and see, see the problem resolved. That's going to be stressful in and of itself. And so there's this tension between coping versus context changing. Big decisions that need to be considered. Remember that Paul coped with his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. But he did not cope with the Judaizers who were forcing their legalistic bondage on the Gentile believers. He confronted and transformed the context. Because just telling the Gentiles, you know, they're just a little bit hard to get along with. You're just going to have to live with it. That was not right. And that was not fair. And so you see there was this context change. Think of Elijah. He's under Jezebel. A horribly bad context. And he needs at least temporarily to escape. So now we're going to come to a couple of four things I just want to mention on on strategies in dealing with, uh, with uh, depression. And again, let me say, I'm not focusing on the major depressive disorder for which it would be helpful to see your doctor. I'm force- focusing on the, the middle of the road. The first thing that I want you to say, and it was referenced in the video, is the theme of rest. Rest. Think of Elijah. Here he's in this spot. He hears the quiet whisper of God's voice. He has a place, a quiet center in his life where he's able to hear God. I'm reminded of when Jesus was with His disciples and they had had just heard the news about about Herod killing John the Baptist. It was a trauma. And Jesus says, come apart with Me by yourselves and rest a while. They needed that time to decompress and, and support one another. They needed that time of Rest If stress is a primary cause of some depressions, relax, relaxation is a preventative measure and should be a treatment goal. Think of the Good Shepherd in Psalm 23: "Leads us beside, still waters, feeds us, supports us. Rest and relaxation. So what does this imply? Well, the one thing that was mentioned in the video and it's supported by the research exercise. We talked this morning about how emotions are connected to our bodies. We don't totally understand the connection, but that, that reminds us that we should take care of our bodies. Paul himself said it first, Thess- uh, first Timothy chapter four: "Bodily exercise profits." So if you went to a counselor and you were in a, a serious depression, one of the first interventions they, they might do is they might say, "We need to plan out your week, and, and how are you going to get activated? Just something simple, like taking a walk going to the gym, playing soccer with some friends, something to get you out and about. And, you can, and this process works best when you write it down. And you actually have, it's like a journal where you plan out your week and something, even something little that you're going to put into each of those spots. We've re- noted as well the whole bodily thing with uh, Elijah, the sleeping and the eating, paying attention to your physicality. Are you, are you eating well? Getting regular good meals. What about your sleeping routines? You go to bed at the same time each night? Is the situation quiet and dark so that's conducive to sleep? Sleeping is a big part of pushing back against depression. But not just rest and exercise, relaxation, but also there's this theme of Meditation that I want to talk about. Meditation. This is Elijah in this passage. He hears the quiet whisper. And so sometimes, you know, we have no place for just this spot to sit still and notice things, to eat our meals and not wolf it down, but to smell the smells and sense the tastes, to take a walk and to notice the things around, to have that meditative spirit. And maybe music is going to be a part of this as well. The scripture speaks an awful lot of music that brings us joy. I mean, some music will sort of jack you up, but other music can calm us down, give us hope. Sing aloud. Psalm eighty-one says, "To God our strength, make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob." Rest and relaxation. The next thing I want to talk to you, and Brother Caleb has already mentioned this, is the whole theme of relationships. I didn't mention it, but this is one of the themes that runs through the the research on depression, that people that are depressed in general have less relational networks. It's interesting. Depression is more strong, according to the research, in rural areas as opposed to in urban. People are farther apart. A need for Relationships. Here in this passage with Elijah, what's one of the things that God says He's going to do? You're going to go and and tap Elisha on the shoulder. And Elisha is going to begin to become a companion. Very similar, I already referenced the story about Jesus with His disciples. Come apart with me. They didn't just need a time of decompression and debriefing, rest and relaxation. They needed a time with the Lord. A time of relationship. Scripture is very clear in this. It's clear in the, in, the, in, the, in the research, but it's also clear in the Bible. I love the Scripture in 2 John 12. And here's what John says in that passage. I put it on the screen. He says, Having many things to write to you, I'm not going to write with paper and ink, but I'm going to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Sometimes we need to call up a friend. Have that list of friends that you're going to call when you can feel those feelings of hopelessness and sadness coming, have the list thought out ahead of time. And call somebody out. Call somebody up. Go out with them. Develop relationship. Leverage relationship. And so there is the importance of social support. I do want to talk about one other thing on this though because it's not just a matter of keeping the good in. It's a matter of keeping the bad out. Not all relationships are going to be health-giving. Some relationships there needs to be a boundary. In the resources that are available on the website, you can check this out. Two Christian psychologists, Cloud and Townsend, written a number of books, but the one I put there was, was Boundaries. And, I mean, we've referenced it already with Elijah, Elijah, he has to get away from Jezebel. This is a a toxic, toxic context. I'm just going to abbreviate what Cloud and Townsend, they tell a story about a, a woman named Sherry. And she has no boundaries in all the areas of her life. Her family, her friends, her work, her church, her marriage. Let me give you the lowdown. She's got a mother that drops in regularly. Actually, the mother's been widowed, but she'll come in, and even if Sherry is busy, she'll she'll, she'll come in. She won't give her any any space. And and Sherry spends all these evenings entertaining her mom, and then she doesn't get her work done. And when Sherry tries to say, I can't, she gets, oh, well, you expose nobody should be expected to take care of a, a widow woman like me and pour on the guilt. Sherry gives in. At work, at noon, there's a friend that calls many days and does the dump. Never asks how Sherry is, but does the dump. All her problems. No balance. Then at the end of the day, she's got a coworker Jeff, who's on the way up, but but he procrastinates, and so the way he's on the way up, it's on the back of others, and so he's going to drop a a sheaf of papers into Sherry's lap and says, I need them tomorrow. You're so great. Help me out. And, And Sherry just takes them, does it? Then at dinner, somebody from the church calls last minute. It's always chaotic, out of control. Oh, we need your help for this weekend. Sherry gives in. She helps. You know, she's got tons of things to do. And then late at night, her husband waltz on the couch, and 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 she's she's looking. She's trying to decide: Do I raise these issues? And he's a manipulative guy. He's trying to sort of make her raise all the issues. And he's playing avoidant and and. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make him blow up and so she doesn't raise it. She's got no boundaries. Now if she started to establish some boundaries, boundaries are actually loving people. Because those people are abusing her, those people are taking advantage of her, and she is enabling them to continue in their sinful behavior. And so the creative thing is how do we love people by creating healthy boundaries? And so this is one way it could go. Mom drops in and Sherry instead says, you know what, this isn't a good time. How about tomorrow night? Or alternatively, why don't you come in and give me a hand? And we'll work and talk together. Well, there are two different types of boundaries. You make your choice and maybe there's lots of others. And then for the friend of work, you know, instead of... Instead of, instead of Raising the conversation and saying, you know what? I sense an imbalance in our relationship. I'm there for you when you're struggling, but I have struggles too. Are you willing to hear them? Or maybe just say, call back tomorrow. I'm not free today, but there's a boundary. When it comes to the coworker, on the way out, just say, you know what? i got to leave in 30 seconds. Leave me a message. He'll get the message. He'll have to deal with it himself. He'll be blessed. He'll be helped. He won't be able to continue in his sinful habits of taking advantage of other people. And she set up a boundary. And you can carry it on. You see, sometimes relationship means reach out to the good, the life-giving, and keep the toxic out. Now, those of you that don't like this, you're going to say it doesn't sound loving. You've got to reframe it. You're not loving people by enabling them in bad behaviors. You're actually helping them in their sin. And I don't say that in a shameful judging way. But love God. Take care of yourself. Bless them. Put up some boundaries. So we've got relaxation. Relaxation. We've got relationships. But now I want to talk to you about something. Choosing joy. Choosing joy. Scriptures is very clear on this. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Philippians says, rejoice in the Lord. You know, joy is something that can be cultivated. You heard me this morning on sadness. And and many of you know that uh, my wife and I had a child that died. And uh, many of you have heard me talk in the past about fairly significant spiritual abuse that we received in our ministry in the mid-2000s. So I'm not talking here. I, I get sadness. I get depression. I'm going to share a little bit of my experience in the spirit of emotional vulnerability. I'm not talking here about that sort of guilting, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just put on a happy smile and pretend. But you know, there are ways... To aim for joy. To aim for joy. It's also in the psychological research. Here's one. Gratefulness. Gratefulness. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. To pray with thanksgiving. Some Christian counselors, even non-Christian counselors, will do this to develop a gratefulness journal. So that, you know, maybe just record one thing each day for which you are thankful. Something that you can be grateful about it doesn 't take away from the experience of sadness, but it will help to counterbalance those feelings. Another piece behind this is laughing. I remember you know laughing is is, is i mean there 's studies around this that show that it lowers cortisol, the stress hormone, and it boosts endorphins in the brain. Scripture said it as well. a merry heart does good like a medicine, so it was i don 't know ten or fifteen years ago in ministry we were in a pretty tough spot, and I said to my wife, Cynthia, I said, you know, I don't know, I don't know that we can continue on. I said, but I heard that if we laugh, you know, it, it might help us. But The problem was, was that, you know, laughing about other people, like ethically as a Christian, it's a bit, I mean, I know we do it, but it's a bit ethically dubious. Maybe not even a bit. So I said, you know what, we've got to get some good comedy. Clean stuff. We went back to the old Laurel and Hardee's. And we started watching them every once in a while. And we couldn't help but laugh. And it worked. It was part of the answer. I was talking about this a while ago. And I remember dear brother Harry Kling was the audience. And he was laughing his head off at this point. I knew what was happening. He was thinking about an episode he had watched years before. (laughs) And we shared it afterwards. We had a good time together. Sometimes we need to find ways We can't laugh on our own. We need to find a situation that will make us laugh. Watching good comedy is one of those ways. But I want to speak for a moment now about a mental orientation. A mental orientation. I'm going to tell you my experience on this. Because I have had an experience with depression. It was back in the mid-2000s, our service was busy, and so we were probably neglecting those themes of rest and communion. And in our work in reaching out to the Chinese community, we had tried a few new things, and and most folks in our area thought it was great. But there were a few that were quite critical. Rarely came to me, but would talk damagingly and widely behind my back. And it was hard. There were times I didn't want to live. I had no plan to take my life. But I didn't want to live. I was sad. I couldn't pull myself together for our work. I wasn't eating right. All of these things. I went away. That was probably a blessing to join Brother Gaius in Newfoundland for a gospel series. And I took with me, I don't know who gave it to me, a book by Chuck Swindoll called Laugh Again. It's a commentary on Philippians, but very, very readable. I highly recommend it. And in that book, he told a story. The story is called The Wall. It's about two men in a hospital. One man is by a window, another man is by a wall. The man by the window is looking out and he's describing all these things you know, lovers walking beside a, a nice pond. And, swans swimming in the pond, and and, and, beautiful suns. It's so beautiful. But the man over by the wall is half enjoying it, but half jealous. Why does he get all the benefit? And so on one evening, when the man by the window was struggling for breath, the man by the wall did not help him. And he eventually dies. The man over by the wall later asked, could I move over to the window? He wanted those sights. They arranged it. eventually he's moved over there and he's going to hoist himself up for his first view. And he looks out. And it's a wall. It's a wall. See, I tricked you. The wall wasn't over there. The wall was over here. I remember when I read that story in Sandringham, Newfoundland. I was angry. I thought, that's not possible. I threw the book across the room and I didn't pick it up for days. But then, it must have been God's grace, I went and picked it up and I kept reading and I remember praying this prayer. I said, God, I don't know if this can happen for me. But I said, God, I want it. And in that experience in the months that follow God chose me that I God showed me that I can choose joy before he would ever change my situation I learned that I cannot control always what happens to me but I can with God's grace and strength choose my response now be very clear on this, that choosing joy is not a snap decision that happens immediately and changes everything. Please don't say that to a discouraged or depressed person. It will only make them worse. However, I can make life-orienting decisions that I, I choose over time a direction for my thoughts. As the poem has said, one ship sails east, one ship sails west, regardless of how the winds blow. It is the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way we go. I would hasten to add that if your depression is a a medical thing, you need to check that out. You can't outrun your biology. right? That's something you just have have to deal with medically. But this idea of a mental orientation towards gratefulness, and laughing and joy in a way that incorporates the sadness as necessary. This can be authentic and liberating. But the last thing that I want to tell you about is I, I want to just talk to you about what in psychology they call reframing, thinking different thoughts. See, 2 Corinthians tells us that we're to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And there's a whole uh, school of of, uh, psychology that's called cognitive behavioral therapy that deals with it at the surface. You've got underlying trauma. Uh, this, This may be a little bit more challenging, but the basic idea is that we have situations in our life and we think that those situations immediately make us feel bad and lousy and then we do things that are not productive. But what we forget is that often... In between the situation and the feelings and the behaviors, there are thoughts. And those thoughts also shape our feelings. And our feelings shape our behaviors. And then there is a whole cycle that gets established here. So the question then is, what kind of thoughts are we thinking? And you know, there's different examples. I'm not going to take too long on this. But, you know, you think of David. And he's in the cave, and they're, 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 they're wanting, he says, to, to kill him. And you can imagine the thoughts that he might have thought. I, you know, I, they're going to stone me. They didn't. This is the end. It wasn't. He could have thought all sorts of things that would have made him feel even worse. But instead, we read in 1 Samuel 30, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He was basically saying to himself, I'm in the Lord. The Lord's, I'm the Lord's anointed. God is with me. And that positive self-talk helped him in that moment. And so my question to you then is, is what do you say to yourself? Sometimes we listen to ourselves too much and we don't talk back to ourselves. Like A.W. Tozer said, I talk back to the devil. And you know, sometimes, sometimes we need to, Think, how am I thinking? And is it really true? And think through it. Fight back. Remind ourselves. Remind ourselves. People that have studied this call these things cognitive distortions. Let me just put these up here. We're not going to say too much about this. But this is the idea you're in this situation, and you start thinking thoughts that they're off, they're distorted. So one of them is an all or nothing. Everything's black or white. It's absolute. So you know, you're in school and you get a C. And you start saying to yourself, I'm a total failure. I mean, in some senses, Elijah is doing this. He says, I'm the only one left. The world is very black and white to him. Now, mind you, he had just come through a really tough trauma. It would be easy to think he was the only one left, but he needed that data from the Lord given at the right moment when he had ears to hear it. There are others. There are others. I'm lonely, but there are others. And that's much different from saying to myself that I am the only one left. Over generalization, this is where one one thing happens and and we we think it's never going to stop. So you think of Jacob back there and, and what does he say? He hears the news about Joseph and he says, all these things are against me and he's got in his mind this this pattern. Nothing is ever going to get better. His situation was difficult. But he was overgeneralizing. Jumping to conclusions. Jumping to conclusions. So I look down and I see Ming here snoozing. He wasn't, but I'm just using it as an example. And uh, I think, oh... Dude, this audience thinks I'm a bore. And I saw one guy sleeping, and I made the thing that you all think I'm a bore. Maybe you do. I don't. I kind of doubt it. though. not But actually, you know, he was up late last night. I didn't know that. And he ate too much at lunch. He's just tired. But I jumped to all these conclusions, and my thoughts made me feel rotten. It didn't. It's all an example. But you see, that's how this thing plays. Out. And there's so many others here. We label people and we label somebody a jerk. Does that feel better? Sometimes, maybe they are a jerk, but I mean, sometimes we have, to, we have to say, you know, they've done something that's really damaging, and I, that ticks me off, but, you know, they've also done something that's good, and we're able to develop a more nuanced way of thinking about it that allows us to feel a little bit better. Or here's one for parents. Your kids come home with a bad report card and you say immediately, oh man, I'm a lousy parent. Like what parent wouldn't have caught that earlier? And the brain starts firing up and you know, it's like just going spinning. And you know, we have to remind ourselves it's just one grade. And maybe the teacher was tough. I mean, there's so many other ways to interpret the thought, but we just immediately go from this one situation, by a cognitive distortion, to horrible emotions, and then we end up in depression. If you went, if you went to a a Christian therapist or a non-Christian therapist, one of the things that they would do is this. Time we at here. I need to wrap this up. One of the things they would do is what was referenced in the video there, a daily record of thoughts and rational response. So here's how it works. A lot of the time, what's happening is is you're, you're experiencing these events and you're thinking these thoughts, but you're not even considering it, and you're going to these lousy moods and you're never even taking the time to notice. So you've got to slow it down. Write down the situation. What was happening? Who, what, where, when? And then write down how you feel. Maybe you feel fearful or anxious or sad. And then start to write down the automatic thoughts. Maybe it's the thought, I'm a lousy parent. I'm a boring presenter. Whatever those thoughts are, this is never going to end. I'm going to die. Whatever thoughts run into your mind in that situation, just notice them. And then over time, what you can start to do is analyze them. Are they accurate? See, because in the moment, you don't take the time to analyze. You just automatically think them and the feelings come. But if you take the time to analyze them and then to come to a more reasonable, rational response that factors in the possibilities maybe there's a 1% chance that I'm a lousy presenter. And that's what Ming was trying to tell me. But it's more likely... And then evaluate the outcome. How do you feel now? You're not going to go from 0 to 100, but you might go from 40 to 60. A little bit of progress. Away from depression and towards joy and towards peace. A little bit of progress is progress. So let's just finish this off with one last video that will hopefully summarize this together and uh, then we'll be done.
2: Living with a Black Dog, a guide for partners, carers and sufferers. What not to say or do. You may well be right when you say, it's all in your head, but don't say it. Leave that up to the professionals. Be a man. This certainly doesn't help, especially if they are one already. Depression is an illness, not a sign of weakness. Don't be an armchair general who gives unfounded advice and orders. Being thoughtful and kind will never go amiss, but don't try and jolly them along. It can often make them feel worse. Don't point out that there are people in this world far worse off than them. It just adds to their feelings of guilt and hopelessness. Good things to say and do. Be sensitive about how you approach the subject. A lot of people aren't used to talking about their mental health, or lack of it, crossing that line simply means you care. Try not talking, instead grow your ears and open your heart. Really being there for someone without opinion or judgement is one of the best gifts you can ever give. Encourage them to seek a professional opinion. An offer to help find a good doctor, make an appointment, and even going with them can be hugely beneficial. Encourage any form of regular exercise. Fitness robs the dog of its power. Help them develop a strategy to simplify their life both at home and at work. Stress is one of the biggest drivers of depression. Less stress means less dog. Make them a ditch the dog box. Encourage them to fill it with favorite photographs, letters or anything that reminds them of what's good in their life. Include a dog journal. Here they can plot how they're feeling, Acknowledge progress, record the things they're grateful for, and set doable goals. Embracing the black dog. Agree to a course of action to get rid of the black dog. An ignored dog can become a big problem. Learn about the condition together. Knowledge is power and validation is a great healer. A united front is crucial in getting the black dog to move on. As a caregiver, compassion, empathy and understanding are vital but recognize that you alone don't have the power to rescue your loved one. Professional help is often what's needed. Finding the right doctor can make all the difference to a healthy recovery. If they're going to tell someone their problems, it should be someone they respect and feel comfortable with. Don't be afraid to go for an initial assessment and don't feel committed to continue if it doesn't feel right. If it's suggested you take antidepressants, do your research, know the facts and ask your doctor plenty of questions. A big obstacle for seeking professional help is the cost. Help them realise that the cost of not getting the right help can be considerably higher. It can cost marriages, friendships, jobs and even life itself. Some simple rules of engagement and agreement. Agree that there is a black dog in your midst and things may have to change temporarily. Agree that no one can help them until they fully commit to helping themselves. Agree to be gentle and respectful with one another during this time. Agree to check in with each other on a regular basis. Agree to communicate honestly and openly. Agree to the course of action set by their doctor and to review progress regularly self-preservation for the caregiver. It can be difficult not to take anger, criticism, negativity and apathy personally. It's important not to buy into it, except that it's the depression barking, not the person you care for. Being overexposed to someone else's black dog can begin to rub off. Misery loves company, so try not to get sucked into the vortex. It's really important to recognize and honor your own needs, limitations and boundaries. Difficult situations are better dealt with when you are calm and in the moment. Yoga, meditation and mindfulness are great tools for achieving calmness and control. Join a support group. There's nothing like being in a room full of people who understand and share your story. It's important to get out and do your own thing and be with friends. Friends may not be able to solve your problems, but they can offer incredible support, comfort, wisdom and laughter. A black dog in any relationship can be confronting, frightening and frustrating. But navigated together, the bond can become deeper, richer and better for it. And finally, the most important aspect of this journey is to constantly remind each other, it will pass, it will pass, it will pass. If you have a black dog in your life, get help, be helped and always hold on to hope.
0: One final comment on that, I I would put a little PS on the yoga piece. Uh, I know Christians have different opinions on this, uh, but uh, I think it's linked with Hinduism. But beyond that, that's a secular video. So what we have to learn when we're dealing with secular psychology is to eat fish. right? Take what's good. And if there's any bones, just spit them out.